It feels like the middle of the night for me. It's only half six in the morning, but I'm so groggy this morning. Patrick Byrne, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Yeah, it's my pleasure. Feeling great. It's uh, I'm in <laughs> Vancouver, so it's uh, 3.30 in the afternoon here, just about time for my nap. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Pat, um, I've known you for, must be 13, 14 years, maybe roughly, um, yeah, yeah. on and off. Um from when we did some work years ago in in the industry when you were with fatigue science um and so you've been working around the area of sleep for a long time how how did you get into this area of sleep Pat? Uh, great question it's uh, not something i actually thought much about um my background really is in occupational hygiene and occupational health and safety and um so i worked in that profession for probably 25 years never even heard about sleep um and uh then one day i had a young nephew who uh driving home from work you know working long hours friday night fell asleep drove his car off a cliff and died and shake shook me up shook the family up um so i started going like what's going on people can die from this like i <laughs> i assume you get tired you just kind of you know, pull over and go to sleep. No, people yeah. die from it. And so I started looking into it. it. Took me years looking into it. You know, looking at the U.S. military, looking at the research that was going on. And this is back, boy, into the you know late '90s, and there was virtually nothing going on. Um, so eventually, I mean, I would caught up with you know some great people like John Caldwell and Steve Hirsch and and others that taught me a lot about the industry. So that's how I got into it. Yeah, that's not it. That's a very odd. Well. It's a tragic path to come into sleep in a very odd way to come in. Um, it's interesting because we ask people about if you get into a certain, you know, industry topic, speciality, not many people actually sit sit at school looking out the window dreaming about becoming an occupational hygienist or <laughs> becoming a sleep scientist. It's not it's not something you sit there and aspire to and go, oh, I can't wait to get over here so I can be a sleep scientist, you know. So it's, it's a kind of a, everybody's got a weird path of, of how to do it. But, yeah. But Pat, before before you got into the sort of occupational health and hygiene and um, sleep world, is it true you had you had a, a try of stand up comedy many years ago? Yeah, many years ago is the operative term. <laughs> I think. <laughs> you know, I've had. I was thinking about this the other night. My my career path started out as a uh, uh, delivering newspapers when I was nine years old <laughs> nine. to uh, America. Mar- what, what, nine why, years why, old. why couldn't you start when you were six? <laughs> Good point. I think we probably had laws here. <laughs> Had to wait till you're nine. Um, and, you know, so eventually I worked in construction for a lot of years. And then I went and, you know, got a, did a master's in chemistry and got into occupational hygiene and, and worked in that field, worked in asbestos litigation for a while in the States. Uh, you know, did a whole pile of different things. And, uh, um, you know, one of, the, one of my interests was stand-up comedy. And so I spent four years, you know, traveling up and down the West Coast at, North America doing comedy clubs and I enjoyed it. Worked with it was in the early days of comedy in the early eighties, and you know worked with a lot of good people who um, I still keep up with some of them. They're you know they went they they had talent. They went on. I didn't. I went into sleep. So. <laughs> <laughs> There's still time for you, Pat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You never know. You, see, you you tend to come up with a wisecrack every now and then, so it's pretty. You still have you still have elements in it. Yeah. <laughs> I was the same. I was a smart arse at school, but I didn't even get to do any stand-up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How do you reconcile the, the difference Pat, between stand-up comedy and opportunistic comedy? So, for example, 
I like to wait. I like to sit in a conversation and wait for my chance to cut in with a smart arse comment yeah. and melt somebody. But how do you make that transition from that to stand up comedy? What's the difference? Ah, the difference is you're up, you're by yourself. <laughs> yeah. you, know, you have to you have to create both sides of the conversation, so that's harder. Right? And you have to do a lot of a lot of thinking. In fact, probably some of the smartest people, with respect to you, Ian, some of the smartest people I've worked to, worked with in the world it, have been stand up comedians. Yeah, yeah. So what, what, what happened to you then? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, that's why I said I'm not in the business anymore. <laughs> All right, we're not going to spend an hour here taking the piss out of each other. So let's yeah. let's let's move on. So Pat, you you got into the sleep world. I have obviously through uh, tragic circumstances. And um, what was your sort of? Uh, you said about basically, you know, improving and increasing your knowledge in this area with some people. Um, what was the first kind of problems you started tackling or looking at that were in interest for you? Was it industrial? Was it sports? Was it general population mm. sleep disorders? Where did you start first sort of start you know biting into these problems? Yeah. Well, as I said, my background was in occupational hygiene. And um, many people may not even know what that is, but, you know, it's, 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 it's part of occupational health and safety that deals with chemical exposure and dust and radiation. So if you want to know, if you want to know if somebody's exposed to noise, you have to be able to measure the noise. Right. And you apply it to some standard and then you get in and fix the problem. And it's the same with dust or radiation, all of that sort of business. So that's my background. I'm used to figuring out, um, how to measure something that's a risk. So when I got into the sleep field, I just like running into a brick wall going, there's no way to measure the risk here. There's no way to measure sleep in the field. There's no way to measure fatigue in the field. This is, it just looked like, quite frankly, the early days of ergonomics where everybody was kind of guessing at what to do, yeah. right? And so that's when I started, that's when I founded Fatigue Science and got into saying, okay, um, part of my research was, um, there were actographs around research type actographs and AMI uh, out in New York. So I bought some of theirs. The problem with that technology at the time was it was kind of, they were big and they're bulky and they weren't waterproof. And uh, there was kind of like old tube TV and you had to download the data yourself and, and analyze it to come up with a report. So after spending a week in New York with these guys, I came away going, there's gotta be a better way to make this this stuff work and automate it. So I so I founded Fatigue Science and got all the smart engineers to kind of figure out how to do that. So we would have actually have a tool that we could actually measure sleep in the field in, in a relatively uh, quick way and in relatively um, accurate way so that we can you know start figuring out whether uh, the, the work we're doing and the interventions actually work, right? actually succeed. So it's at the point now in that technology. So, you know, we went from when I started, which was these big bulky watches that I would literally spend hours pouring over the, the zeros and ones and trying to figure out if somebody is awake or asleep to now, you know, and I've worked with tennis players in, in, in Australia and I work with some NBA players right now and I can track their sleep in real time. Like they just wear that, the ready band. They don't do anything. They just wear it. It downloads to their smartphone, uploads to the computer, goes right to my computer. I wake up in the morning, flip over my laptop. I know how all my guys slept last night. Okay. So you, you've got sort of data there that um, shows how to sleep, how they've slept last night over the last few weeks. Yeah. So yeah, you can exactly. see what, if they've got any problems. So if, if an athlete calls you and goes, oh, I've had a bad night's sleep, yeah. you can log in and actually objectively look at it and say, hmm, yeah. well, in actual fact, yeah. you've got nine hours. It's not that bad. Relax. Right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, some of that, and some of it is, I'll, you know, they'll go to sleep at you know four o'clock in the morning, and I'll just text them, 
you know, the noon yeah. the next day say, oh, what's going on? Yeah. <laughs> like you couldn't sleep, you're partying. Like I need to know what's going on. If you want me, to, you hire me to help you with your sleep. You got to tell me what's going on. So I, so the technology itself has advanced quite a bit. Yeah. 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 And so as you kind of progressed through this world over the last 20 odd years and you saw and oversaw the development of wrist actigraphy, not only with the ready band, but you've seen a lot more coming in, the Fitbits, the jawbones and so on. What, what do you think has been the biggest learning for us in the last 20 years in terms of maybe industrial um, application of these things for sleep? What, what have we seen? Have we seen things improve? Have we seen mass changes or has it got worse or where, where are we sitting, do you think? I think we're starting at the, you know, um, I don't know what the analogy is in the NFL, but in, in American football, it's like you're on the one yard, like you're just starting out. Yeah. Right. And, and, and I think uh, that's true. I mean, industry, for the most part, really doesn't know what the real issue is. They know very little about the sleep patterns of their workers. They often don't even know what the, what the risk is. So it, it's, it's new. Sleep research is pretty new. Um, I mean, I read something um, last month that said 80% of all of the uh, published research dealing with athletic performance and sleep has been published in the last decade. That's right, yeah. Right? So, and so it's all new. And in the industrial side, it's basically the same way. So it's, it's all pretty new and people are kind of feeling their way around. And I know very few industries um, that have really tackled the problem in an, in an efficient way. It's interesting, Pat, because I was doing some educational talks for a company recently and we were talking about, you know, we're going through this like one and a half hour session about, you know, what is sleep, what is fatigue, what are sleep disorders, that general kind of overview, which we we would find quite simple. But still to this day, people were like, you know, flabbergasted looking at this information, which is great because it just shows that we still have lots of lots of just basic work to do to educate people. But what's really surprising and it keeps surprising me over and over again is that in certain injuries, in, sorry, injuries, industries, nothing has been done in terms of research. So classic one where I do a lot of work is mining oil and gas. People have this idea that billion dollar industry, billions of dollars actually, or there must be like scientists all over the world trying to improve this. Less than about 15 papers published on this subject. Nobody gets research funding that I know of. And anybody that's doing it is probably doing it as part of a PhD or, you know, inside the company, maybe collecting some data. There's no systematic approach to this. There's no like research centers out doing it. And then where the company, where the research centers that are getting money, this is my kick in the head to academia. It's all mm. these laboratory based hypothetical type things, where we're not actually doing mm. stuff out in the field. Right. So, right. I think in some power minus one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that may be true. Maybe the game hasn't started yet. Yeah. yeah but, but you know, and, and, and I think it has a lot to do with I think the goals that you and I've talked about over the, you know, the more than a decade we've been working together off and on now is, is, is about solutions. You know, you can measure the heck out of sleep and you can educate the heck out of people, but if you can't come up with solutions to the problems, you're wasting your time. So that's, that's part of that's a, a bit of a roadblock for people because there's sort of a complete lack of education. And what I say to, to um, particularly the, the strength and condition people, the sports scientists in the, in the sporting world, particularly in North America, is that, you know, this is an evolution. This is, and we talk a lot about this in our book, particularly in Chapter 8, around um, the evolution of strength and conditioning. You know, 40 years ago, nobody heard of strength and conditioning. Mm. There was no research going on. And so virtually, you know, for the first 
probably two decades, the virtually all the information about strength and conditioning came out of practitioners within the teams, gathering data, trying different things, sharing the information with their colleagues, not published data, right? Nothing was, virtually nothing was, more stuff's getting published now, but virtually nothing was published. And, you know, and, and certainly I spent, you know, seven seasons with the Vancouver Canucks in the National Hockey League. There was virtually nothing published. There was nothing published about sleep and athletic performance then. But we gathered actigraphy data. We had over seven years, we had close to 7,000 nights of good actigraphy data on these on on the players and we knew a lot what was going on we have published the heck out of this stuff if the team let us but they wouldn't but they used that information internally to fix problems and they were very successful at it but and and so i mean i think part of what practitioners do is are not doing is they're not getting enough of their own data to do it and they're relying on published data and the published data just isn't there yeah I, I totally agree with you. I think that's the, you know that's the thing, and I think you, you said about the the athletic research, for example, mm-hmm. in the last ten years. That paper, there's a paper done. I, I think we might be talking about the same paper done by mm-hmm. Michael Estella. Yeah, the My, UK one. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, oh, is it UK? No, he's he's in Australia. But anyway, Mike, Michael, uh, if it's the same paper, oh, it's got like these kind oh. of bubble graphs on it where all the research yeah, has yeah. taken place. Yeah, that one. And I was surprised because I saw my name on it, and I was like. Jesus Christ, is that all that's been done? You know, because if my name is featured on it, 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 it must be pretty shit. You know, we, we've got a long way to go as one of the top research. So kind of that basically said, that paper, the summary of that paper was, you know, kind of 80-90% of that of that work, like, like you said, Pat, has been done in the last 10 years. 80-90% of that work has been done in Australia. And then it showed with Australia who's done it. And I was one of the people on the West Coast that, you know, was in it, myself and Peter Eastwood, Madison Jones. And it just shows you, how little has been done, but it's like we spoke about world sleep a few years ago, all the money in sports as well. And you would think that people will be throwing money left, right and center. This problem with all the travel, all the jet lag stuff that goes on, all the travel fatigue. And still we grapple with this problem. And I hate to, hate to say this, but pardon the pun. I'm not sure when people are going to wake up mm. to this, to this and actually start tackling that systematically. Yeah, it's it's and it's difficult it, it, because they 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 get they're getting away with it. You know, it's a bit like having a fatigue. You know, if you're a fatigued worker, you know, and a, a shift worker, you 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 show up every day. So, what does a company care? Yeah, right. They don't right. They don't see the they don't see the the downside to it. Although, I mean, it's it's slowly changing, and I think you know we're a little bit um, anxious about seeing it move you know, faster. But if you go back and look how long strength and conditioning took 30, 40 years of, of research and, you know, gathering data from practitioners to, to really kind of evolve where it is today. And there's still fights today. I mean, they're still argue, arguing over what's the, the right things to do and the wrong things to do in strength and conditioning. And that's after 40 years. Right? Yeah. So I think, you, I mean, you just keep plugging, plugging away. I mean, everybody wants, you know, quick solutions and, and, you know, and to, to move on with things, but, uh, you know, but I think as, as health and safety practitioners and as, as sleep practitioners or you know, doctors like yourselves, I, you know, I think we have some kind of an obligation to kind of push back on the press a little bit. Um, I, I, I can't tell you how much I cringe every time I open up a magazine or newspaper and there's some article about some tips or hacks to get better oh, sleep yeah. and quote, quote some doctor. And my immediate, my immediate re- reaction is that if your sleep can be fixed by hacks and tips, 
you don't have a sleep problem. <laughs> you know, you're staying up watching television too yeah. much. Get over it, right? People who have real sleep problems, and that's that's I think the real challenge for industry is because sleep is such an integrated process. And it involved mental health issues, involved sleep disorder issues, organic diseases, lifestyle issues. And it's very difficult for corporations and practitioners to kind of tease through that and figure out what the core problem is. Yeah. And it's a multivariate problem and multivariate solutions. And I think then on top of that, Pat, um, you spoke about some of the research. A lot of the research is pretty is pretty crap, including my own, I think, um, in terms of sports, because it's team-based research. So you're looking at the overall effect of a group. You're not actually looking at individuals. And that's the other thing I think in the last couple of years I've been thinking about is we have to look more at individuals because we're all very different and the biological makeup of everybody and, and what we require is really different. So we can't assume that everybody's like a machine and needs like seven hours and to kind of turn on and turn off, you know? So we're not actually looking at individual performances that much really in sleep. Some people are starting to look at it, but that's an area I think that really needs to be looked at as well. Right. No, I, I completely agree with you. One of the things that we did with the Vancouver Canucks, and I, I've done this with all the sports teams I work with, and I still do it today, is when I get the sleep data, it's between me and the athlete. Yeah. The team doesn't see it. The coach doesn't see it. No, nobody sees it unless I want to refer them to a doctor. Um, and so we get players buy in and they're willing to more accept to accept advice and to tell you things um, but if the, it, it, but if the team knows about it, then they kind of, they, they close down and they don't, they don't talk about it. I mean, work with a major league baseball pitcher is a very high level pitcher and the team found out I was working with him, but I, and I would never say anything. The team found out he had a sleep problem. They traded him like the next day. Really? Yeah. So they don't have much tolerance for, for some of these things. So the athletes, I mean, I signed agreements with these athletes and we, you know, we're very careful about, you know, the work that we do and, 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 and work, working directly with these guys. And um, it, so that's part of the issue. And that's part of the issue in industry as well, in terms of gathering data, in terms of, you know, really being conscious of the, of the uh, security issues and the disclosure issues for, for sleep data. Yeah, there's something I think a little bit different about sleep um, where I don't know how to describe it, but it's more like it's a very intimate process and people are very, you know, weary of a, of um, of having that data released. It's like when we, we did a study at the University of Western Australia where we brought like 25 elite rugby union athletes into the laboratory and we monitored, monitored them overnight using PSG. It's quite a vulnerable mm-hmm. position. I don't care whether you're like oh, yeah. five, five, foot, five foot ten and, and seventy kilos, or you're uh, you know six foot ten and, and two hundred kilos, mm-hmm. and you're lying in your boxer shorts covered up with electrodes on you, and someone's watching you through a camera and watching signals. <laughs> it's quite a weird process, you know. And I think you know for those guys, even they were quite worried that you know information would be would be would be sent out, would be leaked out, something would happen, yep. pictures would be taken. And we, we never did that. We, we reported. So there's where the benefit is of reporting group measures overall, but individual yep. Yep. reports were given um, to show people what was going on. But you have to be very um, protective of that, of that yeah, sort absolutely. of uh, data and also that, that process because you're quite vulnerable. You're in a state of unconsciousness. And so you got to protect right. that for future. 
Right. And you, and you know, for athletes and for workers as well is it's one thing to monitor the, the worker or the athlete while they're, they're playing or while they're in practice or whether they're working out, uh, you know, or, or, you know, when the guys at work, seeing what kind of work practices they do, but you're talking about monitoring people at home. Yeah. So you're looking at their lifestyle issues, the choices that they make. That's right. right? Yeah. I mean, quite frankly, you know, if, if you if you know how to read actigraphy properly, you can figure out whether somebody's had sex before they went to sleep. You know, <laughs> you know. Um, I'll teach you that someday. <laughs> no, it's it's all right, Pat. I actually, it's funny. I'm look I'm looking off here to the side because I actually made that comment. I made that comment to a guy. I said, uh, "Looks like here on a Saturday night, you woke up at two o'clock for a bit of hanky panky." And he goes, "How did you know that?" <laughs> and I was like, it's very, there's a big burst of activity here. I said it lasted about 20 seconds. <laughs> and, he, and he goes, oh, I think it was a bit longer than that. <laughs> I said, yeah, it was about, it was about, tw- it was about 22. Yeah. But you can actually but, tell tell those things, yeah. yeah but yeah. we don't we don't actually know. Here, here's the thing. We don't actually know yeah. exactly what happened. The person no, could have no, got no, up exactly. because someone was knocking the door. But if you throw out something, Absolutely. if you use kind of just generalities and you see a person's expression, you just kind of catch them out and think you're some sort of like, you know, wizard where you can tell what's happening. <laughs> no, no, but but I think I think just because of that, I mean, they're very skittish about you know making having that any data, you know, of what they're doing at home and when they get up and when they go to bed and what their whole lifestyle is outside yeah. of the work environment or the sports environment. They're you know they're they're very reluctant to come to come forward and to be part of that. So that that's one of the challenges. Yeah, you have to build that, like you said, Pat, as well. You're you're at, you're basically at home with them as well, so you got to build that trust. Um, which is different than measuring noise in a workplace. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Build that trust. So Pat, um, over the years, like we said, you've been working with with athletes individually, you've been talking to teams such as the Vancouver Canucks. You guys have done, um, you know, the fatigue science ready band has been in the NFL. It's been in the NBA. It's been used around the world. It's been used by the Wallabies here. I've used a lot of my own research studies. Um, I validate the device in the lab. Like it's 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 a it's a great device that has lots of application. But moving on from the device, um, you've recently um, written a book Ooh. and published it, which is now on Amazon. And um, can you tell us about why you wrote that book, Pat? Why, why did you sit? Why did you sit down with your with your inkwell and um, and uh, <laughs> and and go for it? Because I know you're I know you're old school. You would have written it like that. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I did. I wrote it on birch, birch, birch bark, kind of a North, North American tradition here. On the back of a monk. Uh, yeah, back, back of a bar napkin. But, but, and so you know when I, 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 I founded Fatigue Science, and then in 2011, 2012, they they decided that they would rather sell um, ready bands than than to do consulting, and I started the business to create a tool for my consulting business yeah, because that's where my passion is, is really about doing what we're doing, which is going out and working with people, whether it's in a mine or a sports field and trying to improve their lives. So um, I, I went out on my own, which was, you know, pretty successful. I got you know involved with a lot of teams, but I also recognized that there was a lot of ignorance about sleep generally and about how the whole sleep industry, how it had evolved in how it kind of uh, how it's new and how it kind of fits into um, what we're doing. So I said, you know, I'm going to sit down and start working on this and sketch it. So I literally spent about a year off and on doing research. I mean, we had a stack of research that's probably like three feet high. I mean, literally like ten thousand pages of pages we went of research we went through and and and, um, and so I had all this and I had a draft 
together. And then my daughter uh, came home from law school in the States and she um, had a, got a, uh, not just a law degree, but also a sports law certificate and was a senior managing editor of the Sports Lawyers Journal in the U.S. And um, that's an intern with the New Orleans Saints. And, the, <laughs> and she came home and she read it and she started laughing at this crap. <laughs> she says, let me edit it for you. So the two of us worked together for more than a year and really, uh, you know, all the, the writing style is, you know, a lot of it's hers, the research is the stuff that I did. And, and uh, so it, it was a good collaboration, but we wanted to get it out there for people to, to really kind of take a step back and take a look at sleep generally, how, how the whole thing evolved. I mean, you had a chance to read some of the, um, particularly chapter two, which is, you know, it's called Sleep Comes Late to the Science Party. You know, it's, it's about uh, how sleep research is so late coming in uh, that many, most of the doctors practicing never had any sleep training yeah. in university, right? So all of this is new. So we wanted to kind of get that down, but we also wanted didn't want to make it boring and we didn't want to didn't want to create a pot you know not a podcast we don't want to create some bullet points for people we wanted to get them a sense of the history and and so we we did a lot of storytelling in there stories about the lives of the early researchers and how they stumbled into REM sleep for example or how yeah, they yeah. discover how how they discover EEGs with you know Berger Berger doing that and and, and, you know, I don't know if you know that, that story, which is fascinating because EEG is now, I mean, that's the core of how we measure yeah, yeah. P- PST. So, so he, I mean, he was, he was a, a, a soldier in, in, from Germany, you know, in, in the 1800s. And he was a believer in telepathy. He thought him and his sister were like, had this thing when she was miles away, they could communicate. And so he actually quit the military and then got a, became a doctor, became a psychiatrist and became a, a researcher trying to find these tele, telepathic waves going back and forth between him and his sister. And so he was convinced there was some kind of electrical signals going off. And he actually found the, the low level electrical signals coming off the EEGs, which he named, but he thought it had to do with telepathy and not have anything to do with what's going on inside the brain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fasc- I mean, fascinating discovery. And, and of course, everybody in the university thought it was a big crackpot. Right? Nobody, you know. So he actually discovered it, published, a, wrote the paper, threw it in his top drawer of his desk, left it there for five years before he published it. All right? And then they still laughed at him. Right? And, and then it was another five years before it became mainstream. So, you know, even that took, uh, you know, was a huge evolution. And, and he, he was so depressed out of all of that, he actually hung himself in his lap. Jesus. Right. And which is kind of ironic. We talk a bit about this in the book. It was that the EEGs are actually used in, in some cases to actually help, help treat and diagnose uh, depression. But, but so the book really deals with, the history of sleep and history of science and tries to help um, uh, people who don't have t- time to read a lot of the research paper kind of paper set is still it down and give them some sense of the history and some sense of what works and what doesn't work. We talk a lot about sort of the fake products out there. Some yeah. of the ones, some of the ones that we've accepted as a society. So we shouldn't be, you know, I mean, things like, you know, um, um, lie detectors, Right, so we, we use we use that story. We're, you know, it's still you you watch them. They're in movies. The police talk about them. The press talk about them. it's a complete complete fake technology, but it's been around for a hundred years. Right? 
<laughs> right? And, and so we try to say, you know, to people, you know, pay attention to sleep technology in the same way. Be skeptical about it. I mean, all of this, the hype around sleep watches and Fitbits is, uh, and what we say in the book is not that they're necessarily bad or they're not um, particularly, you know, even if they're accurate. Um, what are you going to do with the data? They are, uh, we, we consider them to be like bathroom scales. Oh, I, right? I totally agree, Pat. I think that's a great way of, of saying it. That's exactly what they are, yeah. They're just a bathroom scale. But they're trying, and, and the reason people wear Fitbits and the reason people wear sleep watches who buy them from a consumer is because they think they have a sleep problem that they want to fix. They're not. They, they don't buy into this nonsense that these companies say, "Oh, well, this is going to help you." It's you know, it's entertainment. It's good. No, people have sleep problems. They want to get them fixed, and sleep watches help you fix your sleep as much as weight scales help you lose weight. I, I totally agree, Pat. And that's the, it's funny you say that because a few weeks ago, this guy was saying about a Fitbit, and he was asking some questions about the stages of sleep, and I was going, "Look, the stages of sleep on that thing." I said, a crap. Don't don't even don't even worry about that. To do to get stages of sleep, you need to apply electrodes to the head and yes. go through the whole kind of you know with the EEG and all the different kind of channels mm-hmm. you need. You need. Mm-hmm. And I said about the the the, the data out of out of device. And I said, um, so since you have all these problems, what do you do about? It? He goes, I don't know. I'm not a sleep scientist. <laughs> like, what what do you do with the watch dead? Like, what's the point? So it's a bit like what you said. It's like having a weighing scales getting on every day and going, I want to be 80 kilos and I'm 90, but you don't know yeah. how to, what's the interventions to reduce your calories, exercise, what in combination with how old you are, you know, male or female, um, you know, underlying health conditions, you don't actually know how to create the roadmap. So you go and you see right. a dietitian potentially or an right. exercise physiologist or both. It has to be individualized, right? And the same with yeah. sleep watches. Right. Yeah. And, and the thing about these, and I, I say this a lot too, because I get, I get a lot of questions about these, this sleep staging and these watches. First of all, the, it's crap technology. But the second thing I say to athletes is, you know, even if it is real, what are you going to do about it? Like, really, you're going to go to bed at night and go, yeah, I think I'll get a bit more REM sleep tonight. Yeah, <laughs> you, can't, you, you can't control it. It's, it's completely useless information yeah. to, to, to the wearer. Yeah. And that's, and that's what, that's another question part I get as people go, Oh, it says last night, I only got 15% in REM. How do I improve my REM cycles? I'm like, I'm a scientist and I don't even know. Like you, <laughs> you just, you can't go to bed and say to your brain, Hey brain, tonight get REM. You can't, like it doesn't work like that. Right. And, and the brain decides what sleep stage you need. For example, I mean, if you look at Hans von Donegan's work um, and, and some of the others is that when you're completely sleep deprived, your brain goes right into deep sleep and stays there for a long period of time. Forget the cycles. Forget the normal, yeah. you know, the typical kinds of disciple. Your brain decides what it needs and just does it by itself. And, you know, don't mess with the brain. Trust it. So, Pat, speaking about sleep cycles, did you address sleep cycles, these 90-minute sleep cycles? Did you look at that in the book? Yes. Yeah, we what, did. So what's, what's your, um, what's your uh, evidence-based research uh, interpreted feedback opinion? <laughs> I, <laughs> I think, I, th- I mean, I think they're idealized. Right. And, and the interviews that we had with, with the people that do the research in this area, they said it's more like a game of snakes and ladders. I don't know if you have to play that game in Australia. Yeah, yeah. You know, no, we, played in our, we played it in yeah. Ireland, Pat. We're, we're not that technical. See, this is the problem. You, you, you Americans, you, you know, like you, you, you think that the whole world is behind you. 
It is. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are way down there. I can tell. I looked at map. We, we play ladders and snakes over here. Yeah. Okay. That is simply, yeah. And the water goes the other way. I think. Yeah. But, but, but so, so, you know, these, the, the sleep cycles are, are really, I mean, what, what they teach people is really an idealized kind of system. And then really the brain figures out what it needs at, at any you know, point in time. And, you know, and, and one of the analogies that I, I talk to athletes about is, is uh, I, I, I play this little game with them. I say, okay, everybody, we're going to play this game like we did with little kids and all sit around and see who can hold their breath the longest. Right? So everybody sit there and everybody, they breathe. And I said, you know why you breathe? Because your brain at some point will let you hold your breath and let you mess with your breathing. But when you deprive it of oxygen, your brain will take over and do what it needs. It'll make you, it'll, you can't commit suicide by holding a breath. Your brain will take over and do that. Yeah. Right. And sleep, sleep is exactly the same way. Your, your brain will let you mess with your sleep to a point. Right. And then your brain will take over and do what it needs to do. Right. And whether you're flying a plane or driving a truck or sitting on the couch, um, you can only deprive your brain so long and your brain will take over and it'll figure out what sleep stages it needs to, to recuperate. Yeah, that's um, that's interesting. Yeah, and I think like coming back on that ninety-minute cycles, while that's like average across the board that people move through different cycles. Again, that inter variability, and we've seen data, and I've seen data with like thousands of people here in our local lab. Some people are falling asleep in ten minutes; others are two hours. So the average is ninety, but everybody thinks, oh, ninety-minute cycles. If I get four of those, it'll be better than waking up in a mid-cycle. Or the other thing then is I have this app on my phone that, that mm. measures my sleep cycles, you know, and so there's all this kind of bullshit around it. And so I said to people, if we have people in a laboratory with all these electrodes on their head and you've got a 99 cent app on your phone, which is sitting beside mm. your bed, how do you think that's measuring your brain? Well, I don't mm. know, but that's on, and there's this sort of nearly crazy belief that if someone says it measures sleep or does it, that it's, that there's some governing body that doesn't allow, allow that to be approved. And this is the interesting right. thing because there's always some, you know, get out of jail free card, you know, um, yeah. where, yeah. And, and all these devices are not medical devices. They're physical activity monitors. You know, that's what they are at the end of the day. Absolutely. And we talk a lot about, um, in fact, the, the, the chapter in the book is called Buyer Beware. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, and we, we actually, one of the things we did in the book is we quote a comedian, stand up comedian, a quite, quite a bit, a guy named Stephen Wright. So I actually never met the guy, but I, I'm a huge, I've always been a huge fan of his, and he's, he's a very funny guy, Boston comic. And he, he goes, uh, I intend to live forever. Uh, so far, so good. So, <laughs> how's your research coming? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and and so I mean we look a lot at at the, you know the current technology and what sort of works and what doesn't work and and the, and the and the science behind it and, and and quite frankly most of it's still hype. I mean the, the reality is people are concerned about their sleep and the tech market has just kind of jumped on it and told them they tell them what they want to hear. Yeah. And sell them junk. They're selling them dreams. It's it, but it's, it's exactly your way and skills analogy, Pat, is great because, you know, if we look at society, particularly in the Western world, you know, Europe, Australia, North America, people are getting heavier, people are getting bigger, but there's more way and skills getting sold. So, the, the, you know, people are kind of equating the measurement device as the intervention. And so exactly. then people then people go, oh, yeah, this is one I had recently, which actually quite was quite good. But what about drink driving? And I went, yeah. 
So there's more randomized breath tests or RBTs. And that's the numbers have gone right down. I went, yeah, mm. but the consequence is different. If you get caught at an RBT, you go to jail, right? So it's mm. different. If you get caught at work, not getting seven hours of sleep, you don't go to jail or you don't get fined. I said, if we did that, it'd be different. And I went, oh yeah, you're right. <laughs> so the consequence drives the behavior in that respect. Right. And so what I say to people when they get the, you know, oh, I got the latest blah, blah, blah watch and it's got all these, you know, all this bling and, you know, it can do this and upload to my Facebook page and it'll tell all my friends. I'm going, yeah, that's like, getting, you know, that's like getting a, a new bathroom scale. It does all up for you. Yeah. Every time you hop on it, it's got all this bling and bells and whistles and it sends off your weight to your Facebook page and tells all your friends about it. <laughs> I got, you still weigh the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not, nothing, nothing changes. Yeah. You just measure yeah, yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. It's just a fancy way of measuring yeah. it. Yeah. It's quite interesting, actually. Yeah. So, Pat, did you, um, did you address any interventions for, um, you know, for people, athletes, non athletes, industry people, shift workers? Did you address that yeah. in the book? Absolutely. Yeah. So, one of the, the the biggest roadblocks I think for in dealing with sleep is just um, uh, diagnosis, because there are so many things that can go wrong, as it were, with poor sleep. So poor sleep, what what we like to say is poor sleep is not a disease. Poor sleep is a symptom, and it's a symptom of a sleep disorder or a, a mental health issue or an organic disease or medications that you're taking or a lifestyle issue. So it's, you know, it's and, and other things, but it's a combination or a combination of any of those. So, um, you know, a lot of people in, that do what I do in the field, their intervention is, well, you know, have some sleep hygiene training and, we'll, you know, darken your bedroom. And going, That's a solution. You have to figure out what the problem is first. If somebody's got sleep apnea, I don't care how dark you make the room, they still got sleep apnea. Right? And so the challenge for interventions is to diagnose and, and to tease out and figure out what the core problem is or problems are and, and fashion a remedy for that. That's, that's the ongoing, that's the current challenge I think in this industry. Um, I, I totally agree with you. And some of the companies we work with, we do that. We have these kind of funneling systems, whether it's a technology picking up somebody, whether it's wrist-worn technology, in-cab mm. technology, whether it's medicals, whether it's, you know, random testing, um, or toolbox talks, whatever it is, there's kind of a funnel of people coming in and then they, they complete a heap of um, uh, questionnaires that then basically test their, um, assess their pre-test probability. And then depending on a number of different factors, then they can go on and get, you know, a diagnosis, whether it's uh, in a lab, whether it's a home-based study, whether it's like an actigraphy study over two or three weeks, whether it's a consultation to dig deeper, and then we figure out the treatment. And I think when we first set that up with some companies, they were very much like, right, well, that guy's got a problem. What do you do? It's like, well, wait, now, hold on. There's over 70 sleep disorders and trying to mm. isolate which one they are. I said, you don't walk into the emergency department and say to the doctor, I have a sore finger and he doesn't look at you and he just bandages up your head and what you walk out the door. Like, it's just, yeah. you need to systematically work through it. And your point there, Grandpa, is very interesting because people's jaw drop when that happens about doctors not being trained in this area. Mm. You said about the scarcity of research or the evolution in the, like people, when you tell people that REM cycles were basically only discovered like 50 years ago, 60 years ago, people mm. kind of look at you as yeah. if, oh, we've always known that. No, we haven't. Yeah. And then when you talk about the amount of training that people get in sleep in medical school, people yeah. are flabbergasted because it varies between nothing and a week at the max. 
Yeah, we could be hugely generous. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the studies that have been done, certainly in Western medical schools, it's closer to two hours. Yep. Right? And we talk, we talk about that research in our book, our book as well. It's pretty but, important, you know, and, but yeah. It, it, it is. And, and when um, PSG, and it's certainly in North America, so when, when uh, sleep studies, uh, you know, individual sleep studies, looking for sleep disorders, became in the late 70s and work, was started to be covered under health insurance. That's right, yeah. So, so all of the sleep labs popped up everywhere. Right. And so the pulmonologists would, would set up clinics. It was unregulated, set up clinics everywhere. The psychiatrist would set up clinics everywhere. And, you know, in my view of a lot of that was, you know, it's an old saying, but, it, you know, if, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Right. And so if you're a pulmonologist, everybody's got sleep apnea and that's, that's your total focus. I've sent athletes into who I think have had some I, I think kind of a weird, I don't know what it is, but kind of a weird sleep disorder. Send them to a PSG lab for a pulmonologist and they come back with the one line saying he doesn't have sleep apnea. Yeah. But I don't care. There's 90 or 70 or 90 other sleep disorders. What about those? Oh, we didn't look at those. Well, what the hell did I sell you? For? I mean, so yeah, the, yeah. The, the, so even the medical profession is is evolving and growing a, around a lot of this. And, and even in the work that we do with athletes, there was a recent paper that came out I think maybe this one I was referring to one of the UK that talked about all of the factors that went into um, uh, creating poor sleep for athletes. And very recently, and they got this nice little wheel and shows. Oh, that's nice um, yeah, that's the one. That's the, is that what you care? That's um, I think it's uh, the guy's name is Walsh, and they did a consensus paper, a narrative review on athletes yeah. and sleep, and they have that wheel about the sports factors and the non-sports yeah, yeah, factors. Yeah, yeah, yeah which we've yeah. often used in fatigue risk management systems. Yeah, this, yeah. these lifestyle yeah. factors hey. and other ones. Yeah, yeah. Except you know what. They don't mention once mental health. That's right. Yeah. Not once. It's a huge issue in professional sports, even in yeah, college yeah. sports. Right? Yeah. They don't mention it. But again, it's because people look at the sleep issue through the lens of their own history and their own education. Mm. Right? And it's hard to, to look at these as holistic problems and understand that there are, like to say, lifestyle issues and biological issues, mental health issues that all have to be looked at carefully when you're looking at somebody's sleep yeah and this is where i think like i'm a, I'm a big fan of crossing domains so you know this as well about yes. that you know basically within the sleep world that even if you go to a sleep expert using air quotes mm. they may not be yeah. an expert to actually work with athletes or to work in the mm. field so you get a person who works in a laboratory assessing people for sleep disorders you put them in a field and uh Sorry, in, not in a field, but in their field <laughs> with, mm, a mining, yeah. with a mining company or an oil and gas company mm. and ask them to redesign your rosters or look at the mm, how this integrates yes. with your safety management system. They won't have a clue what you're talking about. That's a very applied chronobiologist kind of consulting type. That's a kind of a combo between a business person and a scientist where you and I kind of fall. So there's not very many people that do that. But 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 my point is that you got to find the right person as well to help you in the right situation. It's not always the right you know, it's not, it's not that all sleep people are in this mm, bucket mm. that can, that can help. So depending on whether it's athletes, whether it's industry, whether it's a laboratory and people need to kind of stay in their own lane. And we've, uh, I've seen examples of that where sleep physicians have gone into companies and the company's gone, well, oh, how do we do our rosters? And the physician then just goes, well, just test everybody for sleep disorders. And it's like, that is fucking ridiculous. Yeah. That is a waste of time yeah. and a waste of money. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I've seen that a lot and, and we, do some 
we criticize this in our book as well, where, you know, these uh, supposed sleep doctors, and, and I'll tell you where a lot of this came from, and certainly North America. When I started with the Canucks in 2008, nobody was doing this in sports, like literally nobody. We had to kind of create our own roadmap with this. And the, the Canucks, were, the, the, as an organization, were so happy with the results, and the players were so happy with the results, they actually came to me and to Fatigue Science and bought for three years exclusive rights to use our technology and systems so that we couldn't work for any other teams. And what happened then was the the press started calling me then a sleep doctor, which I'm not. But then, so what happened to all the local teams, like the teams in New York, they would go to the local sleep doctor and say, well, come help us. This guy in Vancouver is doing it, so come help yeah. us. They don't know what the hell they're doing. Yeah. And these guys were like literally handing out melatonin like candy to these guys for long haul flights. They don't have a clue what they're doing. Right? Yeah. I mean, and, and so they, what I said to sports teams is, look, think about sleep doctors like you think about orthopedic surgeons. You hire an orthopedic surgeon to get in. They're trying to fix and you know, fix and repair broken bones, basically they break their industry, break their their world down. But that's what they that's what they do. Sleep doctors are trained to diagnose and treat sleep disorders. Right? You don't you wouldn't bring in an orthopedic surgeon to help you with with an industry, you know, for a, a an accident prevention program. That's yeah, not what exactly. they do. Yeah, they fix they fix the consequences of it, and it's the same with sleep doctors. They fix the consequences of poor sleep. They don't. They don't know how to get necessarily get in and, and do the kinds of inter- interventions for prevention. Yeah, I think I think you're right, Pat. I think it's I think a word I would say to companies or athletic teams or whoever it might be yeah. is make sure that you get the right person to do the right job. And if you're unsure, ask someone who is qualified in the field that you have respect for. The, the, you know, and if not, you, you can always like send us an email here. We'll tell you where to go or where not to go in terms of the person you're looking yeah. for. But you make another interesting point, Pat, where someone's calling you a doctor and you're not. There is many people out there today who have no qualifications in this area or no even tertiary qualifications and they're calling themselves a doctor and allowing people to call them a doctor. So there is charlatans in this world that are out there offering advice and the wrong advice. So you need to be very weary in this area. Yeah, I'm very careful about that. uh, I mean, I still got a lot of the athletes I've worked with still call me Doc or Pat, right? <laughs> and, and and it was it's a bit of a it's a bit of a more of a running joke than than anything. Um, but I yeah, I know I'm very careful, you know. And one of the the other reasons we, we were talking about <clears throat> why we wrote the book was I think this even in industry this will give them a good sense of what's real and what's not real out there in, in, in the sleep world and what, what, and what to be aware of where the state of the research is. Um, and, you know, it discusses, you know, what you, we apply in sports applies in industry as well. Yeah. The only difference is the uniform you put on and how much you get paid. <laughs> <laughs> or the amount of shit you have to eat every day. <laughs> yeah. So, so Pat, um, if people want to um, find your book and um, yeah. delve more down into this rabbit hole, where can they find it? And more importantly, what is the title of the book? Do you have a copy there you can show us? I do. It's called Inconvenient Sleep. Why, Why team teams win and, win and lose. Inconvenient but Sleep. Huh? Sleep. Yeah. yeah. And, and, so what, and a lot of that came, came, came because at, a lot of the athletes who work with find sleep inconvenient. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a play on Al Gore's uh, uh, yeah, Inconvenient no, Truth, yeah, no? Yeah. <clears throat> That's a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> So where can people buy your book, Pat? Where is it available? Uh, pr- 
it was available in paperback and in audio, uh, not audio, paperback and in uh, electronic version, uh, virtually anywhere you buy books, Amazon, Kobo, um, it virtually, literally anywhere in the world you can buy it. Yeah. And if you can't use the internet, just scroll down here in the show notes for this episode and there's a link there. We'll put a few links in there where you can go and buy that book. Um, yeah. is, it, is it going to be an audio book, Pat? We're going to hear you... Um, no, you're gonna hear my voice. I, 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 I put myself to sleep. That's how I put myself to sleep. I start talking. <laughs> I listen. I, I listen. I listen to my podcast. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, I, I, we haven't thought. We'll see what the uptake is on it. Um, we get we get a lot of good, good, uh, good reviews, particularly from people um, that do the kind of work that we that we do in, in the industry. And they go, yeah, finally somebody has is like oh you know opening up the curtains and saying what's what works and what doesn't work here yeah excellent all right pat well uh, thank you very much for your time um we will put the link to the book in the show notes and if people pat want to get in contact with you maybe to do some work or to talk more about the book yep. uh, maybe for other media opportunities but more important to do some work with you um, and yes. do you have a contact details or a website that people can go to we do and you can tack that on to the end of the yeah. The, uh, the the podcast. Yeah, I'll send you the I'll send you the link to the website. All right. So, what's the website called? It's 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 burn b y r n e dash co dot com. Burn dash co dot com. Okay, we'll put that in the we, show notes as well. Okay, sounds good. I'll I'll, I'll email it to you just to make sure you got the right one because we tried to make it as difficult as possible so people couldn't find it. <laughs> <laughs> With that, Pat, we'll end our recording. Thank you very much. My, ple my pleasure, Ian.